Well, good morning, Keystone 930. Good to see you. Sometimes, sometimes you go out for dinner, like if you're married here, you take your spouse out, anniversary, it's a feast, right? You don't go somewhere typical. You with me? Um, like, or maybe it's with the family, or maybe somebody gave you a gift card for a good restaurant. You're like, kids, we're going out, get whatever you want. I got a gift card. Doing appetizers. Never do appetizers when dad's paying, right? But I got a gift card. Nobody drinks water. Everybody gets soda. You know what I'm talking about. You feast. You don't forget that meal for a while. Sometimes. It's not like that. You're eating at home tonight. What you eat is very forgettable. Some of you last night, that's what you had. Leftovers in the microwave, warmed up. One writer talks about the work of the word of God in the church. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? The Spirit of God always works when the word of God is open. Always. Sometimes we feast in a way that we never forget. That's what prepare was. And if you were here, you know that. If you weren't here, maybe you got a taste of that this morning. We feasted on the word of God. Some of us were starving physically, but spiritually, we hungered and thirsted for righteousness and God met us. Some of us will never forget that meal. Today, we're going back into just a meal. But it's never just a meal because the Spirit of God meets us in the same way. And so I love, I love what that writer points to, that in the family of God, we stand in all of God's word, and sometimes that's a feast that's unforgettable, and sometimes it's a meal that maybe we won't always remember it, but it sustains us in the moment. And in the family of God, we need both of those things. So whenever the word of God is open, we say, God, we stand in all of your words, so speak to us. Feed us. A meal even after we've just feasted. So that's what we wanna to do today, all right? So I welcome you into that and back into our series in the book of Hebrews. So go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter seven. That's where we're gonna be. Hebrews chapter seven in our teaching series, Jesus is better. That's the theme of our series. Jesus is better. We'll do some background work. Um, Hebrews seven, we're not gonna read it for a while. We're not gonna read the Bible, for, that part of the Bible for a while. Like Fry's not reading the Bible. I knew I didn't like him. I'm gonna read the Bible. Put a ribbon in there, all right? That's what those ribbons are for in your Bible. You know that? I have, I have three because it's like a professional model of the Bible, but uh, whatever ribbons you have, put a ribbon in Hebrews 7. We'll get there, but not for a little bit, all right? Um, let's talk about the book of Hebrews, where, where we're gonna be and where we've been this fall. Written primarily to scholars help us frame the background of the book. Written to Jewish men and women who professed faith in Jesus, all right? So they, they come out of a Jewish context, but they trust Jesus. But there's persecution from the outside, pressure from the inside, and the temptation for the, for the ancient audience that heard this book, read this book, was to go back to rituals of the Old Covenant. Think the Old Testament under Moses. Priestly system, sacrifices, temptation was to go back to what they knew. One writer says the author's committed to convincing them and us that is good and helpful as the practices and principles of the Mosaic law were, Exodus, Deuteronomy, Leviticus, as good as that was, it was temporary, all right? And they were designed for something better. And something better is a person, Jesus. He's better. 
And the new covenant establishes this through his shed blood. That's what the writer's trying to get the ancient audience to understand. Now, we have a hard time relating to that in the same way the ancient audience did. One writer reminds us, everything they knew about, listen, everything they knew about God and their relationship to him was based on a priestly system in the Old Testament. So everything this ancient audience knew was based on the priestly system of the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers. That's what they knew. And it's hard for us to get a hold of that because that's not what we know. Um, and I was thinking, I've been thinking, as I've been thinking about this sermon, how to illustrate that. Illustrations are dangerous, right? But I have an illustration. I ran this past Jill Lynn. She said it's great. So if you don't like the illustration, talk to her, all right? Don't talk to her. It's on me. But it's like this. Imagine if all you knew was a bicycle, all right? Bicycle people don't come after me on this, all right? But all you know is a bicycle. Imagine that. Your grandfather rode a bicycle. You, you push you pedal, you power, everything is a bicycle. Everything you do, your grandfather, you changed church this morning on your bicycle. Grandpa had a nice bicycle. My dad bought me a bicycle. Mom rode her, everything's a bicycle. It works is what you know. Someone comes along and they say to you, I want to introduce you to something better than a bicycle. It's called a car. And you're like, I don't know about a car. It sounds interesting, but it kind of scares me. Listen, in the same way, all right? And again, if you don't like that illustration, take it up with my wife. But in the same way, the, the ancient audience, they understood the priestly system. And here comes the author of Hebrews and saying, listen, you're riding a bicycle and I wanna tell you about a car. I wanna tell you about something better. One writer says it like this, here comes Christianity with, with the author of Hebrews. Here comes Christianity. And he says, the priesthood of Aaron has been set aside. What you know has been set aside. It was a foreshadow of something greater, better. And they're like, what about the bicycle? Friends, that's the work that the author has to do, all right? And so that's what he's done in the book so far. In chapter one, he said, Jesus is better than the Old Testament prophets. In chapters one through two, he said, Jesus is better than the angels. Why is he picking these things? Because this is all part of their bicycle, and he's, in some ways, he's dismantling the thing they trusted. And he's saying, Jesus is better than those. In chapter three, verses one through six, says, Jesus is better than Moses. Moses is a big deal. It's a guy they trusted. Jesus, author Hebrews says, Jesus is better than that. In chapter four, uh, especially verse eight, he said, Jesus is better than Joshua, another guy they trusted. But the ancient audience, uh, they, would, they would counter with immediate protests. They know bicycles. So in chapter five, the author begins another Jesus is better theme, and it's this. Jesus is better than, you ready? Aaron, Aaron. Aaron was a chief priest. And man, big deal in the Old Testament. G the author of Hebrews says, Jesus better than Aaron. He's better than Aaron, the high priest of the Old Testament. The ancient audience would immediately, one writer says, ancient audience would immediately protest and say, wait a minute, better than Aaron. How can, even, how can Jesus even be a high priest? Why? Because he's a member of the tribe of what? Judah. And if you know your Bible, that according to the law of Moses, to be a priest, you had to be a member of the tribe of Levi. Some of you are with me, yes. So that ancient audience is like, that's not how a bike works. The author says, I know. This is better than a bike. It's greater. Jesus is better. And so the Old Testament or the, the ancient audience is saying, how can Jesus even be a priest at all, much less a better one than the Old Testament? And here's what the author says, you ready? 
He says, it's because of this. Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I did not sneeze. That's a guy's name. Because some of you are like, what is that? That's what we're going to talk about today. Jesus is better than, than what you know and what your trust is in. And the, and the author of Hebrews says, because he's a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews said this in chapter five, chapter six, one writer says it like this. The ancient, or the author is saying to the ancient audience, there's another superior high priest, says God, and he is entirely unrelated to Aaron and his family. He's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's Jesus. That's a car. Let me show you why it's better. So that's what we want to begin with. The basis for the author's repeated reminder that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Who is Melchizedek? Turn with me. Genesis chapter 14. That's where we're going to start. We'll get to Hebrews. I promise. Keep your ribbon there. All right? Who is Melchizedek? Well, let's look at him biblically first. And we're going to do that. We have to go to Genesis 14. Where do we find Melchizedek in the Bible? Three places. Genesis 14. We're going to read that. Uh, Psalm 110. Find him in Psalm 110, and we find him in Hebrews a lot. Chapter 5, verse 6, verse 10, chapter 6, verse 20, chapter 7, verse 1, verse 10, verse 11, verse 15, and verse 17. But really, this guy, Melchizedek, he doesn't appear a whole lot but biblically. But who is he historically, all right? That's why we're in Genesis. Here's the first appearance of Melchizedek. You with me? Genesis 14, 7, Genesis 14, 17. After Abraham returned from defeating uh, Kedadir Lomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him and in the Sheva Valley, that is the king's valley. Abram is Abraham, by the way. So his name gets changed as we move forward because Abraham, father of multitudes. So it's Abram to Abraham. So we're not talking about two different people. We're talking about Abraham Man, patriarch in the Old Testament, big deal in the religious, big part of the bicycle, <laughs> all right? Writer of Genesis, Abraham returned from this battle. Mel 18, here's our guy, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. He blessed him and said, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And Blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Every, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. I want to stop there. Who is, who is Melchizedek historically? Well, man, the work, work of scholars here, D.A. Carson, Sam Storm, some of these scholars, theologians, help me. They help me. So again, they help us frame this. Um, interesting, there's a battle in chapter 13. We didn't read that. There's a battle... Abraham joins that battle. He gets back things for the king of Sodom, stuff that was stolen from him in battle. He comes to the king of Sodom. He says, hey, here's your stuff. What does the king of Sodom say to him? Listen, keep the stuff. Just give me back my people. What does Abraham say? I don't want anything to do with your stuff. However, when Melchizedek comes along, what does Abraham say? Abraham says, not only will I receive a blessing from you, I will give you a tenth of what I have. Now, remember, Abraham is an important part of the bicycle when it comes to the Old Testament, right? And the people were like, wow, Abraham's everything. And the writer of Hebrews points them to this text to say, here, Abraham, your father, the big deal in, in the Old Testament law, he, he shows himself 
to Melchizedek and accepts a blessing from him and gives him a tenth. It's interesting. So who is this guy Melchizedek? So we, we're gonna see this, but his name means king of righteousness. And notice it says, hopefully you're still in Genesis, it says he rules over Salem, right? One writer says there were a lot of Salems in the world at this time. And in that word Salem, maybe you can hear some of the Hebrew root word, Salem, Shalom, you hear that? So he's the king of righteousness, but it also said our guy Melchizedek, he's the king of peace. He's the king of peace. And we don't know this, but it seems like Abraham at this time was living in the area of Jerusalem. You hear that? Jerusalem. And so it's possible that this guy Melchizedek was the king of Jerusalem, which again has ties to the Old Testament or the New Testament. We're starting to hear things we know, right? Maybe. So he's the king of peace, the king of righteousness. But notice, again, I hope you're still looking in Genesis. It also says he's what? A priest to the most high God. So he's a king, but he's also a priest. And he blesses Abraham. One writer notes, he blesses Abraham. Abraham, I mentioned this. Abraham not only receives that blessing, but he gives Melchizedek a tenth of everything. One writer says this, Abram, as formidable as he is, recognizes Melchizedek as superior. And man, the readers, the ancient audience Hebrews is used to hearing about Abraham as superior, right? Father of many nations, Abrahamic covenant. But now they're hearing, wow, Abraham gives this guy a tenth and receives a blessing from him. So who is Melchizedek? Well, some have said, Maybe he's an angel. Some have said he's the archangel Michael. Some have said he's Shem, the son of Noah. That's interesting. Some have said he's Jesus in a, what's called a Christophany. Melchizedek, Christophany, aren't you glad you came? Christophany is simply a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. In other words, before Jesus comes, before the son of God, the, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, uh, before he comes in bodily form at the incarnation, he appears, and some say that. I don't think that's the case. If you want to fight with me, you can, but I don't think that's the case because we see that in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is like, he resembles Melchizedek. Why did he just say he is Melchizedek? Because I don't think it's pre-incarnate Jesus. All right, so, so who is he? Well, I agree, with, I agree with a lot of scholars, which is a good thing to do, agree with the scholars, because I'm not a scholar, right? But Here's what a lot of scholars think. He was a real human being. He really was a king that lived back in the day. And he's the king of righteousness and the king of peace in Salem, a literal historical man who served as a king. But he was also a type of Christ. Understand he was a type of Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews, so that the ancient audience might more clearly see Jesus, uses him as that type. So, so that's... That's our guy, Melchizedek. Biblically, historically, let's look at him typologically. You like that word? Another big one. Typologically. How is Melchizedek like Jesus? He's a type of Jesus. Now, some of you, you're like, I understand what type is. Don't insult my intelligence. But some of you are like me, and you're like, I'm not sure how type works. So for those of us who aren't as smart, what is a type in the Bible? A type in the Bible refers to an Old Testament person or practice or ceremony that has a counterpart, a fulfillment in the New Testament. You're like, Fry, I'm not even that smart. Give me an example. Okay, this is John chapter three. Here's a type, and then Jesus has a fulfillment of that type. It's easy. 
Jesus, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, what is that? That's a story in the Old Testament. Right? How, some of you knew that. You could take me right to it. It's in the Bible. This thing happens where Moses lifts the snake up. People are delivered. You know that story. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so here comes the fulfillment of the type. See this? So the Son of Man must be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him might have eternal life. The power is not in the type. It's in the fulfillment of the type. That's what Jesus is. So what the writer of Hebrews is saying to us is this. Jesus is a fulfillment of who Melchizedek is. He's a fulfillment of who Melchizedek is. So how then is Jesus like Christ? Go back to Hebrews. Now we get to Hebrews, except we got to stop in Psalms on the way. All right. Hope you have a third ribbon. Psalm 110.4, David picked up on this. David picked up on this. Thousands of years after Melchizedek comes on the scene. I love what D.A. Carson writes, D.A. Carson scholar. He writes that he thinks David was having his personal devotion time. In the morning, he's reading the Bible and he comes across Melchizedek. And when he reads about Melchizedek, this is what David comes up with under the inspiration of the spirit of God working on him as he, as he writes the Bible in Psalms. Psalm 110.4, David says this. Again, thousands of years after Melchizedek. The Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. There's our guy. Boom, all of a sudden he comes out of the pen of David in Psalm 110.14. Now, here's what we know. When he says he will be a priest forever according to the, to the pattern of Melchizedek, he didn't mean according to the Aaronic priesthood in Leviticus, right? Because you, in the Old Testament, could you be a priest and a king at the same time? The answer is... No. Um, if, you were here, if you were here for January 1st sermon, who do we talk about? Uzziah. He got in big trouble. Why? Because he was a king and he tried to be a priest. David, scholars point out to it, David, when he's writing Psalm 110, he's coming off the heels of King Saul, who was judged and lost his kingdom because he tried to act like a priest. In the, New, in the Old Testament, that was a no-no. Theological term, no-no. It was. It was a no-no. It was wrong. You couldn't do that. And so in Psalm 110, when David says, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest. He's talking about Jesus. You are a priest according to the pattern of Melchizedek. David says, I don't understand it completely, but there's one coming who will be a priest king. Then I love what Don Carson says. He says, listen, that hung there for a thousand years. Isn't that something? For a thousand years, nobody picked up on Psalm 110.4. No one said anything about it. A thousand years. No one refers to Melchizedek. Until the author of Hebrews. And the author of Hebrews says, listen, some of you are riding a bike and I want to tell you about a car. And he goes back to Melchizedek. And he says, Jesus is different. He's better. He's like Melchizedek. Now we can go to Hebrews chapter seven, all right? And I think if I'd have read this right at the start, you'd have been like, what in the world is Fry talking about? Now I think with a little background, it's gonna make some sense to you. So you with me here? Hebrews 7, 1 to 10, here we go. You're a Melchizedek scholar now, welcome. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeat, defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a 10th of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace, you're like, I know all this. <laughs> Without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. 
Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. The sons of Levi, who received the priestly office, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. That is from their brothers and sisters, though they have also descended from Abraham. But one without this lineage collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. In the one case, men who will die receive a tenth. But in the other case, scripture testifies that he lives. And in a sense, Levi himself who received a tenth has paid a tenth through Abraham for he was still within his ancestor. I think King James says he was still within his loins. That's good language. For he was still within his loins when Melchizedek met him. Now, if I'd have read that at the start of the service, you'd have been like, I'm out. But after we read Genesis chapter 14 and we get to Psalm 110, man, a thousand years later, we understand why the author of Hebrews is like, I know what I'm going to pick up on. I'm going to tell you about a car. I'm done talking about bicycles. You people have your trust in bicycles. That's not going to get you there. So what do we learn in the comparison of Hebrews 7 of Jesus to Melchizedek and the contrast of Jesus to Aaron quickly? Some distinctions. Aaron's, I think I have these on the screen. This will help you in discussion and thought. Aaron's priesthood is about descendants. Melchizedek's priesthood is about transcendence. You see that? The priesthood of Aaron, the writer of Hebrews says, listen, here, here's, I want to dismantle some things in your bicycle because your priesthood, it's, it's all about descendants. It's about one guy after another guy after another guy and they're all men. They're all human they can't do what you need done for you, which is to have your sins taken away. They can't do it. It's pedigree, man. It's just descendants. It's the tribe of Levites. And right away you said to me, how can Jesus even be a priest? He's from the tribe of Judah. And the writer of Hebrews is like, exactly. He's a car. You're still riding a bike. The writer of Hebrews says, the priesthood of Melchizedek is transcendent, just like Jesus. One writer says, Melchizedek's priesthood was transcendent in status, authority, name, uniqueness, superiority, all those things, and so is the priesthood of Jesus. Look what the writer says there in verse two, isn't, or verse three, isn't it interesting? Look at all these things. Without, this is Melchizedek, without father, without mother, or genealogy. Did he have a father and mother? Yeah, he was a man, but the writer's pulling him out as a type. Like, he bursts on the scene in Genesis, and no, no one knows where this international man of mystery came from, like Jesus. He had no genealogy, you see that? No beginning or end. Sounds like Jesus. He resembles the son of God because he's a car, not a bike. Man, transcendent. You know how important that is? Look, look what the writer said back in chapter four, verse 14. This is Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, what does it look like to have a high priest who is transcendent? Since we have a great high priest, Jesus, who passed through the heavens. Aaron's priesthood can't do that for you. Jesus' priesthood passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Secondly, Aaron's, the second thing, Aaron's priesthood, according to Hebrews 7, is inferior. Melchizedek's priesthood is superior. That's the language used. In verse five, look at the text with me. He had talked about the descendants, see? And in verse seven, he says, without a doubt, the inferior is blessed by the superior. What's he talking about there? He's saying, Abraham, Abram, he was blessed by one who's better. And they're like, Abraham's, he's the main part of the bicycle. And the author of Hebrews is like, yeah, but I'm telling you about a priesthood that's completely different, superior. Abram gave a tithe, gave a tenth to this priest. He's superior. 
And the priesthood of Aaron is inferior. Verse seven, this is in the Net Bible. I like this translation of verse seven. And without question, the person who has the power to give a blessing is greater than the one who is blessed. For, those, for that ancient audience, you know who had the power to give a blessing? Abraham, and by him, Aaron, and the priesthood of Levi and their descendants. And over and over, it's, we've been riding a bike for years. And Jesus says, I'm gonna tell you about a car. And it's completely different. And he says, Melchizedek is the one who is superior and who blesses what is inferior. And Abraham received that blessing and gave a 10th. Aaron's priesthood is inferior. Melchizedek's priesthood is superior. One gives, one receives. Last thing is this, beautiful. Aaron's priesthood is temporary. Melchizedek's is eternal. I love this one the most. This is the one I like marinated in as I was thinking through this text because of the wording it uses. Aaron's priesthood is temporary. Melchizedek's, like Jesus, is eternal. Look at verse eight. In one case, Men who will die receive a tenth. What's he talking about? He's talking about the priests of the Old Testament system, right? He's talking about the priests who, who offer sacrifices on behalf of their brothers and sisters, the descendants, one priest after another priest, the genealogy, this priest, next line of priests, Aaron's the high priest, his sons are the high priests, on and on, descendants, descendants, sacrificing over and over and over and over again. In one case, men who will die, they receive a tenth. In the Old Testament system, they were given a tenth. But notice what he says. But in the other case, in the priest according to Melchizedek, in Jesus, Scripture testifies that he what? He lives. He lives. You know what some of us need to hear today? Jesus lives. Jesus lives because his priesthood is eternal. According to the order of Melchizedek, Aaron's priesthood was temporary. I couldn't help but think about Jesus when he came to one of the sisters of Lazarus who had died. Look what he said to her in John chapter 11, verse 25. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, he will what? He will live. You know why? Because we're talking about cars and bicycles here. We're talking about one who lives, whose priesthood is transcendent like Melchizedek. Not one that is based on descendants, one after the other, that is temporary, that is inferior. That's Jesus. When I talked to the elders about this sermon earlier this week, I said, this sermon is a who, what, and so what sermon. So the first job was to tell you who Melchizedek is and then to tell you what he has to do with the book of Hebrews. And the last job is this, to say, so what does that matter to you? To do that, I want to take you back to chapter 6 because the writer of Hebrews began to tell the, the ancient audience about this in chapter 5, but you know what he said? He's like, listen, I have some things to tell you that are huge and you're not ready to hear it. And he was angry at them. He's like, you should be ready for this stuff. You should be ready to hear about, you ought to be ready to hear about a car, but you keep pushing that bicycle around. And I can't even tell you because you won't grow up. I love you, but you need to grow up in the Lord. That's my paraphrase of Hebrews chapter 5. So he says this in chapter six, verses one and two. Therefore, he's begging them, leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. What's he talking about? He's saying, put down your bicycle. And again, bicycle people, I love you. Just go with me. Put down your bicycle. He says, leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity. 
Don't lay another foundation of repentance from dead works. Faith in God, all the things that were in the law that's inferior, that was temporary. Teaching about ritual washing, laying on of hands, it had its time. The resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment, all those things you talked about. He's like, listen, I want you to transfer your trust to Jesus. A couple months ago in this series, Pastor Brent made the comment, what, what is your functional high priest? You remember that sermon? He had a chart for us. Some of that is rearing its head again. What's your functional high priest? Because you know what? Their functional high priest was a high priest, a real one. But the writer of Hebrews says, that's not sufficient. That's inferior. It's obsolete. It's done away with. There's something better and it's Jesus. He's a priest according to a whole nother. And that is Melchizedek. So transfer your trust to Jesus. Here's what I want to say to us. Three minutes to tell you three things. I can do it. Jesus is the foundation to flourish. Jesus is the foundation to flourish. That's what I want to say to us. Jesus, foundation to flourish. I'm in the middle of prepare and the Hebrew series, right? I'm that guy. I want to link those two. Prepare, we talked about the fact that, hey, made to flourish, what does that look like in your life? Throughout this year, we're going to talk about, a lot about flourishing. I want to start by saying this. The foundation for flourishing is nothing else but Jesus. The foundation to flourish is Jesus. That's what the author of Hebrews wants these people to know. In chapter seven, three words he gives them and that I think he gives us. If the foundation, if Jesus is the foundation to flourish and you need to transfer your trust, here's what it will do for you. It will make you fearless, faultless, and a witness. Three words for you. Fearless, faultless, and a witness. Um, you know what I learned from Hebrews seven and the life of Melchizedek and him as a type of Jesus is this, God has a plan. Doesn't he? Thousand, thousand years ago, Melchizedek comes on the scene. Thousand years later, David's having his devotions one morning, drinking coffee. I don't know. Reads about Melchizedek. He's like, you know what? There's one coming like Melchizedek. I don't understand it, but he's coming. Thousand years later, writer of Hebrews says, you know who I'm going after? Melchizedek. Because he's like a car, not a bicycle. God has a plan. Man, if God can piece that together, if the word of God can be built around the person and the work of Jesus as a foundation to flourish, you don't have anything to fear. You have nothing to worry about. He can take care of you. You're like, Fry, my problems are big. I know. God's got it. He's got a plan. The psalmist said this, God is our refuge and strength. He's a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Therefore, don't be afraid. Though the earth trembles, the mountains topple into the depths of the sea. That's God. He's got a plan. And thousands of years ago, he ripped Melchizedek out of the context of a crazy story in Genesis chapter 14, obscure Put it on the lips of David to say, there's someone coming like him who's a priest and a king. And everyone's like, no way. The writer of Hebrews says, yes, it's Jesus. He's better. What do you got to fear? God has a plan. Only Jesus saves. That means we're faultless. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before his throne. That's a song for some of you kids. It's a song. The only thing that will make you faultless is Jesus. You wanna know something I learned from Prepare as a Leader? I prayed over scores of cars that some of you submitted. Um, prayed over those, sat in here at lunchtime, starving, praying for you. Appreciate that, I hope so. Here's what I discovered in those cards from us. You know what our problem is? Twofold, you know what it is? A lot of us, 
We're fearful. The rest of us, we're guilty. Here's what a lot of those cars says. I'm crippled by anxiety. I don't know what to do. You can't imagine what I'm facing. If this doesn't work out, God, take this from me. Lord, help me, please. You feel like that? A lot of you do, because I read your cards. I feel like that. We're fearful. Some of you, you know what you're on those cards? Sin has me in its grip. I can't give up this habit. I wish I could stop doing this. God, take this sin away from me. God, can I ever be forgiven? I prayed over tons of cards like that. You know why? A lot of you, you don't feel faultless. You know what the solution is to that? There's one thing. The foundation to flourish is Jesus. And the writer of Hebrews says, a lot of you, you trust a bicycle. And I want to give you a car and it's Jesus and it's better. And what you're trusting in is obsolete and you have to transfer your trust to Jesus. So listen, I know there's a lot of us here and we're fearful and we're guilty and only Jesus can make us fearless. He's the foundation to flourish. Only he can make you faultless. Only standing in his righteousness, he's the king of righteousness, like Melchizedek. He's the king of peace. You stand in Jesus, you're faultless, you're fearless. God has a plan, only Jesus saves. 725, taking somebody's preaching next week, but I'm reading it. Therefore, look at this. Jesus is able to save how? You know what another word is there? To the uttermost. That's King James language. He's able to save to the uttermost. How does Aaron save? Not to the uttermost. Aaron's priesthood is one of descendants and it's temporary and it's inferior. It can't save. Jesus can save. He's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to intercede. So Keystone brothers and sisters, what are we doing with that? Witness. Are you able to take the word of God and say, it's a story. Let me tell you a story. Maybe you're like, hey, Fry, I can't start with Melchizedek. I understand. Well, what do you start with? You got friends, you know what? They're fearful and they're guilty and they need to know there's a car because they're riding a bicycle. And it's up to us to tell them, hey, you know how you flourish? You flourish in Jesus. He's the foundation of flourishing. That's why I don't fear. Not because I'm better than you, but I'm forgiven. I'm faultless to stand before his throne because of his righteousness. You telling people about that? You able to take the Bible and show them? Fearless, faultless witness. Jesus, our high priest, our king priest, like Melchizedek, is our foundation to flourish in Jesus alone, on Jesus alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, we thank you for the way scripture is best understood as it speaks to itself. And so it's great to go from the beginning to the middle to the end of this book and to see where Jesus meets us as a foundation to flourish. And we want to be a people who flourish. So God, I pray that foundation would truly be in you and not, not the bicycle we're riding, not whatever that functional high priest is. God Almighty, dismantle, dismantle the thing we are trusting in and transfer our trust to the foundation to flourish, which is Jesus better according to the order of Melchizedek. That's our prayer, God. I pray if someone needs to be in Christ today, that Lord, you would touch their heart, open them to you who only can forgive. King of righteousness, King of peace, come and give those who are fearful a heart that is fearless. 
because you are great, God. And so we thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen.